National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. Earlier this month of September, we marked the 50th anniversary of the passing of one of the greatest writers of the 20th century, J.R.R. Tolkien. And we celebrated this week both Hobbit Day and Tolkien Week. This week on Register Radio, we talked to author and Tolkien expert Joseph Pierce about the legacy of the devoutly Catholic scholar and his masterwork, The Lord of the Rings. Hello, I'm Matthew Bunsen, EWTN News' Vice President and Editorial Director, filling in this week for Jeanette DeMello, the Executive Director of the National Catholic Register, who is usually the host of this show. She's off today. Well, September 22nd uh, is International Hobbit Day, part of Tolkien Week, a celebration of the life and writings of J.R.R. Tolkien, of course, author of The Lord of the Rings and a number of other remarkable books, and one of the great scholars and philologists that you could ever hope to read. For those of you who may not be familiar with it, Hobbit Day comes from the date of the birthday of great Hobbit figures Bilbo and Frodo Baggins from The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and Tolkien Week is always celebrated in whatever week the birthdays, and hence Hobbit Day, happen to fall. Well, to help us celebrate, we've asked Joseph Pierce to join us. Pierce is an internationally recognized expert in Tolkien and is the author of several important books on Tolkien, including Tolkien, Man and Myth, Tolkien, A Celebration, and two remarkable books that I encourage everyone to read, Bilbo's Journey, Discovering the Hidden Meaning in The Hobbit, and Frodo's Journey, Discover the Hidden Meaning of the Lord of the Rings. He is also the host of the EWTN show, The Quest for Shakespeare. Joseph, welcome to Register Radio again. Oh, it's a joy to be back with you. Thanks for having me. Well, this is uh, one of those shows that I have been anticipating for a long time. Anyone who knows me knows that I am quite literally a lifelong Tolkien fan, especially The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion. So to have this opportunity to talk to you on uh, the, the very week, so to speak, of Hobbit Day and uh, Tolkien Week, but then also to mark this 50th anniversary of his passing is, is a rare honor and, and a treat. I have to start by asking you, when did you first read The Lord of the Rings, and what impact did it have on you? I procrastinated largely because of the size of the, of the weighty tome, which The Lord of the Rings is, of course, over a thousand pages. And I kept feeling that I should read it, but I didn't really feel that I had time. I eventually got around to doing so when I was in my mid-twenties, at 25 years old. And although I didn't get all the very deep um, Catholic uh, underpinnings of the work that Tolkien refers to, um, I, I, I understood enough about the work to know that I'd entered a cosmos in which um, virtue, goodness, required self-sacrifice, and which evil was demonic. So... Um, it allowed me to enter, if you like, a Christian cosmos before I was fully Christian myself, though I was on my path to conversion. And it certainly helped me on the path to, to conversion. So I'm very grateful to Tolkien for many for many things, but, but especially and particularly for the not inconsiderable role he played me in bringing me to Christ. I always look back because my mother uh, read The Lord of the Rings to me and to my brother when we were very young. And I always credit whatever capacity I have for the English language in terms of vocabulary and other things, I owe in many ways to Tolkien, because of the, just the sheer imagery, but the beauty of his language. When, as you went back, uh, especially as you were undergoing your conversion, did you really begin to appreciate um, the, the Catholicity of it? Uh, I, I know you were already marveling at the, the beauty of the language. Yeah, so obviously, because of my own ignorance of the depths of the faith, when I first read it, I, didn't, I, didn't, I couldn't go as deep as Tolkien uh, can take us, should we actually want to go deeper. 
J.R.R. Tolkien said, and I'm quoting him word for word, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously at first, consciously in the revision. So Tolkien's inviting us to go deeper into Middle-earth to understand the profound Catholicism we found there. And once I realized, of course, this coincided with my reception into the Church a few years after I first read The Lord of the Rings. So as I was going deeper into the faith, The Lord of the Rings, if you like, accompanied me, and that allowed me to go deeper into The Lord of the Rings. It was sort of like a a mutually uh, beneficial uh, relationship, whereas I was going further further up and further in, as C.S. Lewis would say, into the Catholic faith. And this enabled me to go further up and further into Middle-earth, to the Lord of the Rings, and, uh, and then it, simultaneously, as I got further up and further into the Catholic profundity of the Lord of the Rings, this enabled me to go further and further up and further into my Catholic faith. So it was a, it was a, a mutually enriching and, and deepening relationship with Tolkien that led to, to a deepening of my relationship with Christ and his Church. So in some ways, as you deepen in the faith to torture uh, Bilbo Baggins's uh, line, it, it wasn't necessarily there and back again, but it was sort of back and there. Yeah, indeed. And that, that basically, you know, the, for, for Tolkien, you know, that he understands the human person uh, in a profoundly Christian way. Uh, there, 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 if you like, there are three dimensions. Tolkien says in his famous lecture on fairy stories, that fairy stories, fairy stories hold up a mirror to man. They show us ourselves. So um, they're, they're very realistic in the sense that they show us ourselves, but they, 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 it's a magic mirror. It doesn't just show us ourselves like show, show us ourselves like a physical mirror does. You know, when we look, all we can see is our physical features. Uh, the, the great stories, such as Lord of the Rings, show us not merely who we are, uh, not just on the surface, but in the depths of our psyche, but who we should be and who we shouldn't be. And, 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 and Tolkien has this understanding of who we are, who we should be, and who we shouldn't be, from his understanding of Christian anthropology, as specifically the three dimensions of who we are as human persons. We are anthropos, from the Greek word for man, which means that he who looks up, specifically he who, he who gazes in wonder. Um, and then we have homo viator, man on a journey, or man on a pilgrimage, or man on a quest. Each of our lives is a journey which is meant to get us to heaven, and that's a perilous quest. So this idea of homo viato, and finally, homo superbus, you know, from, the, from the Latin word for pride, superbia, proud man, who refuses the journey, who refuses the quest, and insists on either not traveling or traveling in wrong directions, rather than taking the path uh, towards heaven. And Tolkien understands, and this is what plays itself out in The Lord of the Rings, is that battle, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, the battle between good and evil takes place in the heart of each individual man. So that battle between Homo Viator and Homo Superbus, between pilgrim man and proud man, takes place in each, each individual human heart. And that's what we see playing itself out in The Lord of the Rings, in the individual characters, and the way they actually interact with each other. Yeah, so when we look at uh, each of these books, we have The Hobbit, we have, of course, the set of The Lord of the Rings, and then we have The Silmarillion. Now there's a, another vast corpus of uh, Tolkien's writings relating to Middle-earth and, and its mythology, and we have the unfinished tales and a lot of other things. How do they, they weave together uh, in, from the standpoint of the, the Catholic worldview, uh, starting with The Hobbit? Well, the Hobbit, in many ways, is is um, is a, a, a meditation on St. Matthew's Gospel, um, chapter six of St. Matthew's Gospel, where 
where we where we learn that uh, as, as Christ tells us that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And you know, if we if we if we are not detached from earthly possessions, we become possessed by them. We become possessed by our possessions. And that's the paradox. And that's that in in the Hobbit. That's what's known as the dragon sickness. And the thing about the dragon sickness, it doesn't just afflict dragons. It turns us into dragons. So at the beginning of the book, Bilbo Baggins is actually suffering from the dragon sickness because he's a creature of comfort addicted to the creature comforts. That's why he refuses the adventure, refuses to become Homo Viato and take the perilous quest uh, towards virtue, the right of passage that's necessary, because he's, he's addicted to his possessions. He's possessed by his possessions. He doesn't want to leave his, the comfort of his hobbit hole. We're told right at the beginning of the story that a hobbit hole means comfort. And, of course, that, that, that comfort um, is dangerous because it's, it's the path of least resistance. If we, if, we, if, we are, if we are always seeking comfort, we are always refusing to take up our cross, which, of course, is the acceptance of discomfort. So the whole point of The Hobbit, really, is that Bilbo Baggins has to learn to leave the, the creature comfort, to leave his comfort zone of his hobbit hole, and take on the dangers of taking up his cross, learning to live self-sacrificially for others, and growing into a, a better, more virtuous hobbit uh, in, in the process. And then we move, we progress to the Lord of the Rings itself. Yeah, and the Lord of the Rings, of course, it, it takes the whole thing much, much deeper. The key to unlocking the Lord of the Rings is the date on which the ring is destroyed. And once we understand the significance of that, the rest of the story sort of uh, comes together for us in, in profound theological ways. So the ring is destroyed on March the 25th. And of course, for Catholics, we know that March the 25th is the Feast of Denunciation which is a crucially important feast. It's more important than Christmas, because, of course, we know that life begins at conception, not at birth. So the Word, word became flesh on March the 25th, not December the 25th. God becomes man on March the 25th, not December the 25th. And even, even more profound than that, Tolkien, as a medievalist, as someone who understands the early church and, and early church history, knew that the early church also believed that the historical date of the crucifixion was March the 25th. Um, obviously, we don't celebrate uh, Good Friday on any particular date because the Triduums and, uh, and Easter is a movable feast. But the actual historical event of, of the crucifixion happened on one particular day in history. And according to tradition, that's also March the 25th. So Tolkien has the ring destroyed on the date uh, of the Annunciation, when, when, when God becomes man, and also the date when, when Christ lays down his life for us on the cross and dies for us. And of course, God's becoming man and his life, death, and resurrection constitutes our redemption. And what's destroyed by that is the power of sin. So the ring is synonymous with sin. The ring is the one sin to all, sorry, the ring is the one ring to all them all and in the darkness bind them. Uh, original sin is the one sin to all them all and in the darkness bind them. And the one ring and the one sin are both destroyed on the same uh, uh, allegorically significant date. Yeah, well, you're listening to uh, Register Radio here on EWTN. I'm continuing my conversation uh, with Joseph Pierce, Tolkien expert uh, and Shakespeare expert. And Joseph, uh, mention your, your website because I think I'd, I'd love to have people visit your site because there's so much there to uncover. 
Yes, indeed. In fact, there's an awful lot on Tolkien and Shakespeare on my site. So if people want to find out what I'm up to and what I'm writing and, and the podcast that I record each week, they should go to jpierce.co. So that's J-P-E-A-R-C-E dot C-O, not dot com dot C-O. Perfect. I have a lot of friends who have read uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. They have tried to read The Silmarillion and found it, uh, it's very different, let's put it that way, from those other two works. It's, for myself, it's probably my favorite Tolkien work, uh, although not in the interest of not disclosing too much about it or too many spoilers, let's just say it doesn't have the happiest ending in the world. But what was your reaction to The Silmarillion when you first read it? Well, again, it, it, it has more gravitas. It's deeper, it's heavier, it's uh, harder reading, and it's not what we're expecting. So Tolkien's a great storyteller. So in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, the story moves along, we're taking along with it. The Silmarillion is more, it's more uh, akin to scripture, in fact. In some ways, we should try to see it in that way and read it in that way, because it's, it, it's what allows us to go deeper into the theology of Middle-earth. Mm-hmm. We have to understand that Middle-earth, Tolkien's system, Middle-earth is not another planet, it's not another cosmos, it's our world just out, you know, tens of thousands of years ago. So in other words, it's, the, it's under the same god, uh, which in uh, the Silmarillion, he's called Iluvatar, the Ilivata means uh, the, the All-Father, or the Father of All. So, so basically, this is our cosmos he's talking about, with the one God, um, and the theology that unravels itself in the creation story of Middle-earth is parallels, of course, the creation story we, we see in Genesis, and indeed in the, in the first chapter of St. John's Gospel, because Tolkien uh, is telling us, in, if you like, in the language of the elves, the same story as we hear in Genesis, because it's the same world under the same God that's being created. So the, the work is quite deep and heavy in theology, but only in the same way as people might find reading the Bible heavy. It's not a single story. It's a, it's a, it's a collective of things that, that, if, uh, that assemble together, make this glorious, transcendent whole. Well, obviously, the Silmarillion is not as glorious or transcendent <laughs> as Holy Scripture, and I'm not right. suggesting as much. But I do think that Tolkien's trying to suggest the same sort of approach to the deepest truth that we get from Scripture, which is why the form of the Silmarillion in some ways echoes in its own way uh, the way that Holy Scripture is presented. Yeah, and, and the Silmarillion dealing with, as it does, with the first age, with creation and then the first age, and then the great uh, war with Morgoth, uh, and for those who may not be familiar with them, if you know Sauron, Morgoth was his old boss, who was about a hundred times worse than Sauron could ever hope to be. But it also touches on the, the second age, and then sets the, the table in so many ways for what happens in the third age and the events of the, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. What would you say is the best way to describe uh, the Silmarils and this character of Feanor? Well, yeah, the, the key thing about the Silmarils is that what they contain is the primal light of creation. So the light of the sun and the light of the moon are reflections uh, and, and somewhat pale reflections, and in some sense even mere shadows of this pure light uh, that we see uh, in, in, in God's creation itself, uh, the, the, the light at the beginning of creation as told in Genesis and in St. John's Gospel. So the Silmarils contain that uh, pure light. And, of course, there, there are enemies of that light. And you mentioned Melkor, uh, or Morgoth, as you, as you call him. Melkor mm-hmm. is Satan. That's made perfectly clear. Tolkien, again, is a linguist. 
that the, 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 the Melkor is the mightiest of the angels. Uh, Melkor means mighty one. Lucifer uh, in scripture means light bearer. Lucifer is the brightest of the angels. Melkor and, uh, or, or I should say, Melkor and Lucifer are one. When they fall, and the language that Tolkien uses for the fall of Melkor, uh, the fall of Satan in, uh, in the Sumerian is very similar to the way that the fall of Lucifer is described in the book of Isaiah. There's a parallel there, and the parallel is intentional because it's the same demonic person, the same fallen angel, that Melkor is merely another name for Lucifer. And when they fall, they forfeit those names which were given to them by God, and they become known uh, as the enemy. Uh, and uh, so Lucifer is no longer known as Lucifer. He's known as Satan, which is Hebrew for enemy or adversary. When Melkor falls, he's no longer known uh, as Melkor, mighty one, but is now known as Morgoth, which also means enemy. And, and we're told in the Silmarillion that Sauron, the Dark Lord and the Lord of the Rings, is the greatest of Melkor's servants. So he's, he's if you like, he's, he's Satan's right-hand demon, uh, but he's not Satan himself. So, again, we have, this, we have this profound imagery of fall, and that's a recurring motif in the Silmarillion, is, is, is the pride precedes the fall. And this is a, a recurring motif in our history, as well as, as it's a recurring motif in the history of Middle-earth. Tolkien, again, is showing us ourselves and our own world and our own cosmos through the telling of these stories. Yeah, and, and for those who um, are bracing to read the Silmarillion, just be prepared that you have whole sections of the book with titles such as the Nirnaeth Arnodiad, the, the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, and we also have the Fall of Gondolin and the Fall of Numenor. So it, it can be pretty tough going, but there's so much of a treasure here uh, if, if you look at it through the, these Catholic eyes. Yeah, and again, th- those, those of us that love theology and philosophy should really feel at home uh, in the Silmarillion, because that's what he's doing there. He's plumbing theological and philosophical depth. So we shouldn't expect the same thing as the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. And if we don't come to the Silmarillion with those expectations, uh, we will be able to take the Silmarillion on, 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 its own, uh, on its own terms and enjoy it for what it is. And it will take us, I, I promise, it will take anyone who reads it deeper into their Catholic faith because it allows us to understand the recurring, uh, the recurring nature of human sin, particularly the sin of pride, and how that leads to uh, fall, and the fall of individuals, of course, but also the fall of civilizations. And that's what we see in the Sumerian, is that the civilizations falling because of their collective adherence to the sin of pride, their abandonment of virtue, their abandonment of caritas, of, of authentic Christian love, and the embrace of pride. And, and that, when it's done by an individual, is self-destructive, but when it's taken on collectively as the philosophy of a culture, is, is actually destructive of the civilization itself. And that's what Tolkien is doing on a, on a macrocosmic level in the telling of his stories in the Silmarillion. These are great stories that lead us deeper, not merely into the history of Middle-earth, though of course they do, but also deeper into our own Catholic faith. Yeah. Well, many people have, have never actually read The Lord of the Rings. Uh, they've only seen the movies and maybe the, the versions of The Hobbit or even talking about Pride and Hubris, uh, the Amazon series, The Rings of Power. What's your advice to them, and, and what do you think of these adaptations? 
Well, uh, the first thing, if, if people have not have, have not, neither read the book nor seen the movies, my first advice would be don't read, don't see the movies until you've read the book. Right. This is my advice. This is my advice to all classic works of literature. There's a very good reason for it, because once you've once you've seen a film adaptation of a work of literature, your imagination has been gate crashed. That when you read the book, you will see the actors that you've already seen on the screen. And that's not going to allow you the freedom to enjoy the work on an imaginative level by, by exploring it freshly um, with, 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 with new eyes. So if you haven't seen the films already, um, then, then don't until you've read the books. Um, if you have seen the films already, then absolutely you should go and read the books because The Lord of the Rings is much deeper and much richer than any adaptation of it. As regards the adaptations, um, the, the Rings of Power I haven't watched and won't watch. I know enough about <laughs> what other people said about them to know it's not something I'm, I'm going to uh, endorse or have or, or waste my time on. The Hobbit movies, I watched the first one and was frankly appalled and was told that the second one was worse, and so I haven't bothered to watch the second or third of those. Uh, the Lord of the Rings movies, on the other hand, I do actually enjoy. Um, I think that uh, Peter Jackson did go to great pains with those with those films, that those three films, to win over the hearts and minds and loyalty and allegiance of... Uh, the, uh, the millions of Tolkien lovers out there, he knew he needed them on his side if this film was to be a success. So I think he, he sought authenticity, and for a large part, he captures the spirit. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't, there aren't things wrong with it. There are things wrong with the Lord of the Rings adaptation. Some of them pretty egregious. Uh, the fact that the Ents, who have great gravitas, are treated as comic relief. The fact that Faramir, who is a saint in the book, is sort yes. of is a conflicted character in the in, in the in the films. But there are various things that are wrong. But I'm certainly happy to have watched um, the Lord of the Rings Peter Jackson adaptation, and will happily do so again. But uh, again, if people haven't yet seen seen those films, read the book before you do so. Well, my humble contribution to your recommendations is that if you can and you have the time, watch the extended versions of the three films because he was able to add so much additional material that, that fills out some of the, the corners of the story. Well, you're listening to Register Radio here on EWTN. I'm Matthew Bunsen filling in for Jeanette DeMello this week, continuing my conversation in the brief amount of time that we have left with Joseph Pierce celebrating the 50th and uh, marking the 50th anniversary of the passing of J.R.R. Tolkien the master creator of The Lord of the Rings. In the time that we have left, I want to ask you, what would Tolkien have to say to Catholics today and to the world? Well, it, Tolkien was, was a lifelong practicing and devout Catholic. Um, the, the, he had a great devotion to the Blessed Sacrament. In fact, one of the, one of the uh, greatest quotes about the Blessed Sacrament I've ever read, including even by the saints, was by Tolkien when he describes the the the, the, the um, blessed sacrament as the one great thing to love in life in life where we'll find romance, glory, honor, um, and the fulfillment of all our loves on earth. Uh, you know, so he 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 if someone would certainly would 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 um, tell us to keep ourselves centered on the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. He was also asked by a young girl, you know, what's the meaning of life, and he basically unpacked the Gloria that we say during the Mass, as, as, as basically this shows us the way we should approach reality, that we should see the glory of God in, in all of creation and in uh, every, every person we see. So that to, to see creation uh, as being the manifestation of the glory of God and, and, and to keep our life centered on the Blessed Sacrament, I think these would be the two areas that Tolkien would focus on and, 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 and urge all Catholics to focus on. 
Yeah, and, and very briefly too, people forget that Tolkien was a great scholar and not just a creator of Lord of the Rings. If you were to recommend one thing that was not specific to Middle Earth that he wrote, what would it be? Well, I, I always think that uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful volume called um, Tree and Leaf. And when I teach Tolkien's philosophy of myth, so the love of wisdom that we found in story, um, that uh, I always use that book. It's a slim volume. It contains three works, all of which are offer valuable insights into Tolkien's understanding of the power and wisdom to be found in stories. Um, and the, so that's his famous lecture and essay on fairy stories. It's uh, his poem, Mythopoeia, so that, that basically means the telling or making of stories. And then, and may, maybe most specifically, I've had named just one, his wonderful short story, um, Leaf by Niggle, which is an allegorical short story about the, uh, the, uh, the role of, 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 of the artist, but specifically the fact that each of us needs to live in harmony with our neighbor, uh, the two great commandments of God, to, to love the Lord thy God, to love our neighbor, and to, be, to make that the guiding light of, of, of our lives. And that story actually takes us beyond death to the afterlife, and he has a wonderful vision of purgatory in, in that short story. So uh, I would say Tree and Leaf, the volume, and then Leaf by Niggle, particularly the short story. All right. Well, thank you. One last time, where can people find you? Yeah, if they go to my website, that, that's where I post uh, all, all that I'm up to, all that I'm writing, the podcast I'm recording, etc. And that's at jpearce.co, J-P-E-A-R-C-E dot C-O. All right. Well, Joseph, this has been a joy for me. Uh, and uh, happy Tolkien Week. And uh, I know it's passed already, but uh, happy Hobbit Day. Thank you. To, you. to you also, and thanks so much for having me. Well... That concludes Register Radio for this week. Remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, check out the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. Thanks so much for joining me here on Register Radio, here on EWTN. For Jeanette DeMello and our producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Matthew Bunsen. Until next week, please take care and God bless. For more information about the National Catholic Register and about Register Radio, go to ncregister.com. Podcasts of Register Radio are posted on ncregister.com and on EWTN.com. Join us next week at this time for Register Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you need your news on the go, read the Register online. But if you want to take your time and savor the stories, then subscribe to the National Catholic Register's print edition. And with award-winning Catholic journalism that goes beyond what you'll find from any secular news service, you'll get the real story behind the events that unfold over the course of the year. Try the Register for free today and get it delivered to your home, office, or parish. Join the Catholics who depend on the Register for its faithful and courageous reporting. Get six issues free today online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully.